we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is the universe next door. Today we will be interviewing Dr. Michael Behe. Uh, before we get to that, I just wanted to remind you that this is the last week of our series, Doubts About Darwinism. So if you're new to this podcast, make sure you go back and check out the past few episodes we did. We had uh, David Berlinski on, we had Stephen Meyer, Richard Weichart. So this has been an awesome series. Next week, we are going to be starting a brand new series on cultural and ethical issues. Uh, we are going to be tackling the difficult issues that are facing just about everybody in our culture um, that most people don't want to talk about. So we're going to be giving you answers to those difficult questions and topics. So if you have a question, send it to information at apologetics.org so that we can cover it over this next series. Uh, I'm very excited about it. But as we continue our Doubts About Darwinism series, let's get started. Michael J. Behe is Professor of Biological Sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a Senior Fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He received his PhD in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania in 1978. He has written over 40 technical papers and several books, Darwin's Black Box, The Edge of Evolution, and most recently, Darwin Devolves. And may I add to this bio, bio that you are constantly under fire for presenting well-researched ideas about biology. Dr. Michael Behe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you? Terrific. Uh, thanks for that nice introduction. Uh, yes, I'm constantly under fire. Uh, lots of brickbats and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it seems like. And, and a lot of them seem like personal attacks. But I, I've been blessed by your work in many ways. And uh, in, in, you're over in Lehigh. Is that Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? Yeah, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, actually, I was went to a conference recently in Israel and had a little name tag with Bethlehem on it, and people got confused <laughs> where I was supposed to be from. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure that, that's funny. Uh, my I have a lot of family from Scranton. I don't know where that is in relation, but my my brother had just gone up to Philadelphia for a few days for to visit. Yeah, well, let's see. Philadelphia is about fifty miles south of us, and Scranton's about fifty miles north. So we're oh wow centrally located here. <laughs> yeah, sure. And of course, Scranton was made famous by that The Office TV show. Otherwise, I don't know how popular it is. Well, that and you know we've got a president who hails from Scranton too now. Don't forget. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, so first of all, we uh we have a lot of listeners who are very knowledgeable in the area of intelligent design, and as you know, Dr. Tom Woodward has been driving this thing for years, and that's one of his that's one of his main talents, I would say. But we also have many who are new to these concepts uh, and may not have heard of Michael Behe or even intelligent design. So, who is Michael Behe, and what inspired you to do work in the area of biochemistry and specifically in the intelligent design movement that seems to be just growing every day? Well, uh, a lot of it was serendipity. Uh, as a kid, I was always interested in science because uh, it's I wanted to know how the world worked, and science seemed to be a good way to do it. 
and I became interested in chemistry and went off to college and then became interested in biochemistry, the chemistry of, of life. And I uh, did work on nucleic acid structure and protein structure, and I wasn't really interested in evolution. I, I didn't care much about it. But uh, a while back, um, gee whiz, in the mid-1980s now, which, you know, was, you know, I was alive back then, <laughs> at least. Uh, I, read, I read a book called Evolution, A Theory and Crisis by a geneticist named Michael Denton, who criticized evolution strictly from a scientific point of view, didn't have a philosophical or theological axe to grind. And it startled me because I didn't have any answers for the problems that he pointed to. And um, after I read that, I went to the uh, science library and looked for the explanations for how complex biochemical systems might have evolved. Now, in the study of biochemistry, you come across fantastically complex systems. Uh, and I had always just figured, well, I didn't know how they evolved, but somebody must know. But after reading Denton's book, I looked and found that nobody knew how they had evolved. They, they just mm. kind of waved their hands whenever talking about them. And, and I got mad at that point because I thought that I had been led to believe something, not because there was strong evidence for it, but just because for sociological reason. That's, that's how the educated class is supposed to think these days. And mm -hmm. so from then on, I became and did became interested in evolution. And eventually I fell in with a bad crowd. Uh, a man named Philip Johnson and Stephen Meyer and <laughs> uh, terrible guys. <laughs> other folks who also questioned uh, evolution. And then I, I became more and more interested and decided to write books about problems that I myself saw with it. Now, when you started, were there any specific complex systems that stood out to you? Well, one uh, that I was always interested in uh, was the blood clotting cascade. Um, the blood clotting cascade, uh, people, most people, you know, you, you nick your hand while you're gardening or something and blood trickles out a little bit and slows down and stop and stops. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but scientific work starting in the 1950s showed that this blood, what's called the blood clotting cascade contains dozens of different protein factors that are necessary to make sure it starts at the right time and at the right place and stops at the right time and the right place. There's this little thing floating around in your blood called fibrinogen, which kind of looks like a tiny molecular dumbbell. And when you cut yourself, another protein comes along, cuts off a piece of the dumbbell, which allows it to stick to other copies of itself which eventually allows it to form uh, kind of like a fisherman's net, which stops blood from flowing. But that factor, the one that activates the uh, fibrinogen, itself has to be activated by something else. And that has to be activated by something else. 
And so it's this long cascade of factors. And you say to yourself, how in the world could something like that have evolved? <clears throat> Excuse me, because if, if the fibrinogen were there just by itself, that doesn't actually clot or doesn't actually slow blood down. It's got to be activated, but it's activated by something else. And so it's kind of this chicken and egg thing. And I wondered about that for the longest time. And as a matter of fact, I wrote about a chapter about it in my first book on evolution, Darwin's Black Box. And to this day, uh, let's see, this is now uh, 37 years later, uh, the blood clotting cascade still has no Darwinian explanation. Wow. That is an, an incredibly interesting. And that actually, I think, provides us with a perfect segue into one of your most popular concepts. So let's start with this. Uh, Dr. Tom Woodward, who is our senior lecturer here at the C.S. Lewis Society and a mentor of mine, he's a mutual friend, of course, between us. He has several mousetraps uh, laying around his office. Now, if, if someone who hasn't heard of the term irreducible complexity and, and didn't know that Dr. Woodward has spoken and written extensively in the area of intelligent design, if they walked into his office, they might just think that his office is infested with mice because why else would someone have mousetraps lying around? So just in case a listener of the show ends up in his office one day, what is irreducible yeah. complexity and what does it have to do with a mousetrap? Okay, well, uh, it, it's it's actually a, a, a key idea in all of this debate because Darwin's uh, idea of evolution was that, well, you know, some, some creatures, there's variation in a species and uh, a creature that is faster or stronger or more brightly colored or, or something uh, has a little edge in the a race to survive and they'll do better and natural selection will essentially preserve them and if that trait can be passed on down to the next generation then the offspring of that one with the with the alteration that made them uh, slightly more competitive uh, they'll be more numerous and then more numerous still and then maybe another little change comes along so, uh, and that can propagate too. So Darwin envisioned this gradual improvement of uh, some traits and properties of uh, organisms over time and natural selection acting on those. It was a good idea, but it depends on this gradual tiny step <clears throat> improvement of the organism. But as I was speaking of with uh, the blood clotting system, a lot of things, especially at the molecular level, don't look like they can be improved in this gradual fashion. And if you have that fibrinogen, that first component of the blood clotting cascade, and it's floating around by itself, it doesn't help. It needs the thing to activate it. But even the thing to activate it needs the thing to activate it too. So if you're missing any of those components, it doesn't work. So when I was first thinking about these way back in the 1990s, I said, well, this system means this, and it needs that, and the other thing too, and if it doesn't have one of those, it doesn't work. You know, let's see, what do I call it? it, it well, it's complex, because it's got all these things, but if you take away one, it, it doesn't work, so you can't reduce that system, so it's 
irreducible. And I said, well, it's irreducibly complex. Yeah, I like that phrase, irreducibly complex. <laughs> it's catchy. But since most people don't think about the blood clotting cascade uh, for m much of their day, I looked for a kind of an ordinary, everyday sort of example of that and and pointed to the uh, mechanical mousetrap. Mousetrap usually has a number of parts, like a wooden platform and a spring and a part that squashes the mouse and a couple other things too. And if any of those components are missing, the mousetrap doesn't work. It's, it's not like it works half as well or, or a quarter as well. It's, it's just broken. And so I use this mousetrap to kind of illustrate the problem for Darwin's theory of the complexity that had been discovered by science at the molecular foundation of life. And I call that irreducible complexity. Sure. Now, there are there are some who have said, I mean, I'm thinking of Richard Dawkins and a couple others, but they've said there are no examples of anything in the animal kingdom that demonstrate irreducible complexity. Now, you just gave one in blood clotting, right? Yeah. Well, uh, they they use a particular definition of irreducible complexity. <clears throat> sure. They say, if it occurs in life, since everything in life evolved, and since irreducibly complex systems uh, don't look like they can evolve, can evolve. Therefore, it's not really irreducibly complex, even mm. though, even though <laughs> it sure looks like it, and even though they haven't come up with any idea of how it could have evolved gradually. So it's kind of a public relations move. It's not an intellectually serious right. move. Kind of just uh, an so, attack. Yeah, the the point is, if for an irreducibly complex system, if you take away a part, the system doesn't work anymore. You know, do that with a mousetrap, that's easy enough to see. There are people with genetic diseases who are missing one or other components of, of the blood clotting cascade, and they got big, big problems because their blood clotting systems don't work. So, uh, you know, uh, most people would agree that, that irreducible, these things are, in fact, irreducibly complex. Right. And I remember when I read Darwin's Black Box years ago, the flagellum was one of the things uh, that that really stuck out to me because it's just it's absolutely mind blowing. Can you just I'm not asking you to recite the whole thing for memorization, but can you touch on the flagellum and just how incredible it is? Yeah, it, it's really crazy. Uh, the, one of the mind blowing things um, in this in this discussion is that science in the past 50, 75 years has discovered that the cell, the foundation of life, is actually run by machines. You know, real machines, you know, molecular machines, machines made out of molecules. And they work by mechanical principles and, and the principles that run our machines in our normal world. And one of the most visually uh, arresting uh, machines is something called the bacterial flagellum, which is quite literally an outboard motor that bacteria can use to swim. And it's got, uh, it's got this long hair-like structure called the filament, which it, uh, is attached to a motor, and the motor turns and whips this thing around so that it pushes against the water and propels the bacterium forward. And that's, like I said, is attached to the motor, 
uh, specifically to a drive shaft and the drive shaft is spun by this motor that uses a flow of acid from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell and it, it is so cool that I used a picture of it as the frontispiece for Darwin's Black Box, the first uh, book way back in 1996. And the nice thing about that, uh, about the flagellum, is that when you look at that, everybody says, that's a machine. That's some sort of space-age machine. Because you can, as with a mousetrap, you can see that the parts relate to each other in order that they can perform this uh, this uh, propulsion function. And I might be getting ahead of myself, but the way that we detect purposeful intelligent design is when we see that parts have been arranged, they've been put in relationship to each other to do something. And that's, you know, plain as day when you look just uh, when you look at a picture of a mousetrap or a picture of an outboard motor in our everyday life or the picture of the bacterial flagellum, you can see that these things have been ordered for a purpose. And, and so it's easy to conclude they were intelligently designed. And during Darwin's time, of course, they had no idea what the flagellum was or, or DNA for that matter. And I know he, he didn't completely create the concept of evolution on his own, but, but how different was was thought back then in terms of science. Like we just mentioned, they didn't know about DNA for a hundred years later. Uh, they didn't know about even the Big Bang, that the universe wasn't eternal until 70 years after the, the origin of species. They, they were riding horses. Not that that matters. I just want to throw it in. But do you think that their, their drastically different way of understanding the universe played a role in the uprising of Darwinism? Uh, sure, it, it did. It, it wasn't... Uh... A, really a different way of looking at the universe. It was just that the fact that they, lock, they lacked much of the knowledge that we have now, they thought things were a lot simpler. Uh, they, had the, they had microscopes could, so they could see cells, but the, the microscopes weren't all that powerful, so the cells looked kind of like kind of squishy little pieces of microscopic jello. And it seemed to Darwin, seemed to everybody of that time that, hey, these things are pretty simple. So that as you go down in life, as you go down from organisms to organ, organs and down to cells, things got simpler. So they weren't worried about, say, the origin of life because they thought that such simple things as cells could kind of form from sea mud, you know, that it was not a big deal. Uh, but now, uh, since we know that, in fact, the cell is a horrendously complex system, this beyond science fiction, beyond our ability to describe it uh, even, uh, we see that it is a big problem. Now we have to explain this because uh, it's, it's so, you know, it's like stumbling across an automated car factory. This does not arise on its own. Uh, so Darwin and his contemporaries yeah, were utterly in the dark about what science knows today. And, and as you said, it wasn't even known until the 1940s that DNA was a molecule that carried information. And this was mind-blowing at the time. How can a molecule have information in it? You know, chemists mm -hmm. never thought about anything like that. And even the structure of DNA, the structure of these machines, 
nobody knew until relatively recently. So pretty much the whole theory of evolution was developed well before we knew what the foundation of life looked like. And now that we have discovered that it's, uh, that, that theory is, can easily be seen to be pretty inadequate. And so just over the time of 150 years or so since The Origin of Species was written, they went from thinking that a cell was very simplistic, basically, like you said, a blob of jelly, to now unbelievably complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And it's, and it's not slowing down. It's actually speeding up. Uh, science depends on the instruments and the techniques available to it. You know, the the primordial example is the invention of the microscope in the year and in, in the early 1600s. Before the microscope, nobody knew that, say, insects had compound eyes, or that there were microscopic organisms in pond water. There was mm-hmm. this whole world of life that nobody knew existed. And as microscopes and other things have become more powerful. Scientists have continued to push and probe and further uh, uh, look further down, and it's gotten even more complex. Uh, I was at a conference recently where we uh, looked at uh, a particularly powerful microscopic view, uh, something called cryo-electron microscopy of a uh, of a machine called an ATPase, which is responsible responsible for uh, making the energy molecules of the cell, something called ATP. And again, it's this turbine engine. I mean, literally a turbine engine, which allows things in. It's got this slot over here, and it's got this arm over here to push this lever against here. And... Uh, you know, you can see it's a sophisticated uh, machine. So the more uh, in the past hundred years or so, for some reason, uh, it's been thought that the more science knew, the more religion would retreat. But that that's the opposite uh, of what right. has happened. More science has discovered about the nature and the universe. The more we see it cries out for an explanation beyond itself. Nature does not explain itself. It needs something beyond itself uh, as an explanation. Yeah, and actually, uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer and I got into that a little last week about how when you look at the history of science, you see all of these these Christians like Isaac Newton and Francis Bacon and Blaise Pascal and so on and so forth. And and it's that they had this, this worldview that everything had to have been designed. That's the only way it makes sense. And uh, and one of the things that, that you just mentioned that I, I always hear the human eye attacked. There's always somebody who's like, well, the human eye, it couldn't have been designed. And uh, now I'm not a scientist. I think that the eye is a pretty good invention. Why is it that the eye is always attacked? And, and is it irreducibly complex? Well, you know, uh, you know, my my vision isn't all that great, but it's still pretty good. And, and <laughs> I'll take it over blindness any day. Uh, yeah. Right. I, the the thing with the eye is kind of a gotcha argument. Uh, it's it's really uh, not a serious intellectual one. Uh, it's uh, the vertebrate eye. Our eyes are the same structure as any vertebrate. You know, birds and bunny rabbits and so on. They all have the same kind of eye. So when 
And and as many people know, the eye is extremely complex. It's got lens and it's got a retina and muscles and tear ducts and all sorts of stuff. Um, and the eye, our eye, is the same structure as, say, eagles use to spot prey a mile away. So it does wow. pretty well. Nonetheless, uh, in ver the vertebrate eye, the retina uh, is uh, the, the nerves attaching to the retina actually have to come out uh, they come out from behind the retina and go back inside. And because of this little arrangement, there's a small area on the retina that does not have photosensitive cells there. It's called the blind spot. And it doesn't matter at all to our vision because we have two eyes and the blind spots uh, of each of them kind of cover for the other. So we have no gap in our field of vision and the brain and the eye have all sorts of really impressive techniques to make sure we're getting a whole picture of whatever we're looking at. Nonetheless, people who object to uh, folks saying that the eye simply reeks of design point to this blind spot and they say, well, if I were in charge, they say, <laughs> I would have made the eye <laughs> without a blind spot because no, as as uh, Richard Dawkins says, no tidy engineer, quote unquote, would allow the eye to have uh, such a structure. And again, they have not demonstrated that they could make an eye without a blind spot. They haven't demonstrated they can make an eye with a blind spot. They haven't demonstrated they can make even a component of the eye. Uh, they just say, well, you know, I wouldn't have done it this way, so therefore it's wrong, so there, gotcha. But in recent years, right. it's, it's interesting that in recent years, other scientists who didn't have an axe to grind have actually shown that uh, the this arrangement of the eye is actually better for the vertebrate eye than what was suggested by the Darwinist because the really yes the uh, the arrangement of having the um, there are capillaries uh, uh, which are behind the eye which bring it nutrients because the retina is a very high uh, energy using tissue because it's always uh, being hit by light and some uh, components get damaged and they have to be replaced and rebuilt so it needs a flow of blood and oxygen and nutrients to to keep it running and the arrangement that is uh in the vertebrate eye with the uh with the uh, blood vessels behind it and the nerves uh coming and going back behind it allows this high activity structure Additionally, the it's shown that the uh, that the uh, light which comes uh, through the lens and is approaching the retina, it has to go through uh, the blood, uh, the um, capillary layer, and and through the nerves 
and uh, hit before it hits light sensitive cells. And uh, critics have pointed to this as a supposed flaw, but there are specialized cells called Muller cells, which act, get ready for it, which are act as, uh, as uh, 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 light optic, uh, light uh, optical fibers, which transmit light through the cells, especially down to the, uh, to the retinal cells for detection. So the entire wow yeah the, so uh, at, when these uh, cells were first discovered, which was only a dozen or so years ago, there was a uh, an online journal uh, which said which was just astounded and said that you know uh, it's amazing that you know the blind spot is not a bug it's a feature in the eye and uh, that expression um, shows the problem with uh, arguing that uh, arguing essentially that you know look at the structure of this system we don't know why it's uh, built like this we wouldn't have built it like this and so therefore no intelligent being would build a system like this so essentially, we don't know why it's built like this. Therefore, it's it's not built correctly, and that's what's called mm-hmm. classic argument from ignorance. And now that science has <laughs> yeah right, science has uh, repaired our ignorance. We see that in fact this is a much better way to construct it than what was suggested by our Darwinist friends. Sure, it kind of reminds me about. Uh the idea of like junk DNA where we think it doesn't have a purpose. And then later on, it's like, Oh wait, this actually has a great purpose. And we just didn't understand that. Yeah. Yeah, The, the the track record of predictions that things in biology do not have a function is not very good. (laughs) And uh, you would, you would be well advised not to, not to, uh, not to make that prediction in the future. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, now, this isn't necessarily a scientific argument, but do you? Well, I'm just thinking while you're talking. Do you find this interesting? That, uh, of course, in the intelligent design movement, but we we create things like we create cameras that are similar to the eye. We create motors that are similar to the motors in our cells, and and so on and so forth. And this this doesn't this just kind of scream design when we look at nature and we're kind of trying to replicate it. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And remember, before Darwin, it, it not only screamed design to everybody, but everybody acknowledged design. It was only comparatively late in human history after Darwin that you know we got so educated that, that we decided that things that are obviously designed are, are not, like, like the eye and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you can tell from the obviously functional and purposeful way these things are built that they were designed, but people kind of got sidetracked or they got flummoxed because s- smart scientists said that, no, that's just an appearance of design. You know, take our word for it. We can explain it all without any real purposeful, intelligent design. And when you ask them to mm-hmm. do that, they say, well, you wouldn't explain it. You wouldn't understand it or, or we're working on it or, or some such thing. But uh, uh, things have gotten to be so intense now because science itself has made so much progress. In, and we see uh, that the design and the purpose is just increasing 
that 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 argument that tr that trust us argument uh, is is losing a lot of its force. Sure, and and also you know before Darwin, it's not even just that they observed that things were designed; they they benefited from it. That's where we get some of the greatest scientific discoveries that modern science is built off of, right? Ab absolutely, and and not only that, but not only do they um, not only do they notice that things are designed, and not only have has science discovered things or first engineers have invented machinery that was later discovered to be used in life like bat bat mm -hmm. sonar and uh where wow uh which was sonar and radar was uh invented during world war ii and it was a top secret the story goes and then some biologists figured that bats could use do that too and and they were censored because they <laughs> <laughs> because that was, <laughs> uh, was a top secret. <laughs> but these days... Oh, that's funny. These days, scientists and engineers are studying living things for ideas on how to build better machinery. So it's not that they're just discovering things that had already been invented. They're examining life for better ideas on how to go about... Um, uh, designing better better equipment. So uh, if that if that doesn't convince you of of real design, and, and you know you're hopeless. <laughs> yeah, well, I I would agree a hundred percent. And in your newestly published book, it was what 2019, I think. Uh, Darwin devolves. It, your subtitle is the the new science about DNA: the challenges of evolution. Now, what is this this new science or this new discovery regarding DNA that you describe here, and why is it so significant? Well, uh, it's it's this uh, that Darwin proposed that evolution proceeded by random changes and natural selection. Okay, and later on, hundred years later, uh, people said, "Well, what are these random changes?" And it was discovered that DNA carried the information of life. So this is, well, changes in DNA, mutations in DNA. And some, some of those, a lot of those mutations will do damage, but some mutations will improve things and they can be selected by natural selection. So for example, in the forties, you could see uh, antibiotic resistance or certain strains of plants do better in certain environments. You say, well, that's a mutation and it was selected, so hooray for Darwin. <laughs> but the question remained o open, what were those changes in DNA exactly? What, what happened? Did you, know, did you get a new gene? Did a pre-existing gene somehow get ramped up or, or, or what? And it turns out that nobody knew because the technology did not exist at that time to track down those changes in DNA. Now we know that mutations are molecular changes. They're changes in molecules in the sequence of letters along the DNA, which code for, which will then cause changes in the machinery, the protein machinery of life that the genes code for in things like the blood clotting system and the bacterial flagellum and, and so on. Mm -hmm. Only in the past 20 years has the technology become available to sequence the entire genomes of organisms. 
That is the entire complement of DNA in particular organisms like people and flies and bacteria and polar bears and uh, dogs and all sorts of things. And the computer methods have been become available to track down the important changes, the ones that code for the inherited changes. So that's the new science of DNA, the ability to sequence DNA and follow mutations as they uh, as they pass through a population. And the long and you said in the last twenty years. Yeah, just the last twenty years. You know, wow. So you know, some people, uh, myself included, will remember that it was in the year I think it was two thousand. If it was nineteen ninety nine or two thousand, that Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. President Clinton and Prime Minister Tony Blair of, of Great Britain had a joint announcement at the White House announcing the completion of the Human Genome Project, the complete sequencing of the human genome. That was just 20 years or so ago, and that, and that was done at great expense and great time and great labor. But since then, the technology for that has improved orders of magnitude. And now people can sequence the genomes of uh, species, you know, in a couple days for uh, a few thousand dollars, not the millions of dollars that, or billion dollars that it took to initially sequence the human genome. And so, like I said, you can you can sequence the, and it's been done. You can sequence the genome of the grizzly bear. And you can sequence the genome of the polar bear. And the polar bear is supposed to be descended from the grizzly bear. So you can then ask yourself, well, what differences are there between the two that cause the one to acquire the traits of the other? And you can do the same thing with, say, dog breeds for chihuahuas and Great Danes and French poodles and so on. Turns out that all of those breeds of dogs have had their entire genomes sequenced. And you can say, well, what makes the one different from the other? What traits were selected? And in my book, Darwin Devolves, the main point is that the great majority of the mutations that are selected, either in nature or by dog breeders, are ones that break pre-existing genes. They're not ones that are making new genes or even making new control elements or they're not adding information to the genome. They're taking information away from the genome. And for various reasons, that helps the species survive in particular circumstances. Just to use the polar bear as an, uh, I'm sorry, uh, let me give a little break there, see if you have a question or comment no that's fine i I, well i was just going to say just to kind of recite what we're talking about here there's this idea of evolution sort of breaking things or breaking genes and taking advantage of that in opposition to building new features or adding information to a genome so it's kind of backwards from what darwin would have expected that's that's exactly right and a lot of people get hung up on the question how can breaking a gene improve a species. How can it give an advantage? Well, think back to the polar bear and the most highly selected, the most helpful mutation that 
uh, aided the polar bear in its new snowy environment was one which uh, which uh, broke its ability to uh, have pigment in its skin or in its hair, in its fur. The grizzly bear, of course, is brown, uh, but polar bears are white, and it turns out that all you have to do to go from one to the other is break the gene that's responsible for placing brown pigment in its fur, and that helps if you're in a snowy environment. And another main mutation going from the grizzly bear to the polar bear is to break a particular gene that's involved in fat metabolism. Turns out that polar bears get almost all their calories from fat, from the blubber of seals, eating the blubber of seals. Grizzly mm -hmm. bears don't specialize like that. So it turns out you can have a lot of cholesterol. We, we people, you know, we eat too much fat. We have heart, heart problems. But with the polar bear, they have lost the ability to transport cholesterol into their bloodstreams from their guts. And so that doesn't cause them a problem. So it actually helped them in their environment to lose a particular ability. And kind of in an everyday analogy um, example, just to get the idea across that imp you can improve things by losing things, Suppose you had a really snazzy new car, a 20, new 2023 uh, Lamborghini or something. It was really cool. And you could zip yeah, I have one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's back ordered. You must have gotten it. <laughs> but anyway, suppose that for some odd reason, your life depended on the Lamborghini getting better gas mileage. Now, it's not built to get great gas mileage. It's built for other things. But suppose, you know, your life depended on that. What, what could you do to get better gas mileage? Well, you could decrease the weight. You could take the doors off and throw them away. You could take the hood off and throw it away. You could, uh, you know, increase the tire pressure so that there wasn't any friction. But anyway, the point is that by losing something, losing weight, you could, in those special circumstances, improve your, your chances to survive. And that is, it turns out that that happens a lot in, in nature, that if you, in order to improve your circumstances, you can get rid of something instead of, instead of uh, acquiring something new. So I, I think that that's a very different way of looking at evolution and it's only become possible in the past 20 years. It's interesting that it's at the molecular level that the rubber meets the road in in biology and, and life. So up until 20 years ago when we could not follow the molecular changes that were going on in evolving organisms, we could not know how well Darwin's mechanism was working or what was going on. It is only in the past two decades that we've gotten uh, uh, the inf relevant information. So forget anything before 20 years ago mm -hmm. uh, about how life was supposed to evolve. That was speculation. You know, maybe 
uh, you know, speculation by smart people, but speculation nonetheless. And now we see that things are are quite different from what the uh, original story had had thought. That definitely sounds like it. Uh, and are there any examples of information being added to a genome opposed to to breaking or a gene breaking? Well, uh, that's a good question. So the DNA is just packed full of information. Uh, and uh, the exact sequence of letters is kind of like the letters in an encyclopedia where they spell out things, they carry information. So people have asked, well, if, if things evolve, is new, ever, is new information, new abilities being added to the genome? And have we seen that? Well, people confuse the question of whether genomes have information with <laughs> whether they could mm -hmm. evolve. And they say, look, you know, this animal has lots of information. Isn't evolution wonderful that it put it there? But they, they you know, kind of absentmindedly forget that they haven't shown that. They just observe that it's there. And the big question is, how did it get there? And mm -hmm. can extra information come about? And the short answer is, is no. Uh, nobody's ever seen substantial or even, you know, modest new information being added to a genome. But if you press the question, then in public debates where, where people are just interested in winning, they'll try to uh, maneuver the conversation into ambiguous areas, kind of like the the uh, blind spot in the eye where people would point to that and ignore everything else and say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. And therefore, uh, and therefore design is wrong. People will say, well, look at things like say sickle cell hemoglobin, sickle hemoglobin. We know there's a mutation in African populations in the hemo in their hemoglobin gene, which gives them a measure of resistance to malaria. Okay, and there's, it's just a tiny little change, as small as you can get. Uh, and they'll say, well, look, there, that's new information. <laughs> but the question is, we all know, we all agree that mutations and accidents do happen. And that, you know, maybe just by chance, this arose and, and did a little bit of good. And uh, I think, in my own uh, in my own mind, that's a perfect example of what Darwin's mechanism can do. Great, you know, just to make one tiny change. It's like make changing one letter in a paragraph of text, and uh, and uh, you know that did some good. Okay, but you also notice that it didn't make a new gene; it just changed. Uh, a little detail in an old one. Mm -hmm. There is no, there is no example of anything more substantial uh, arising. So, uh, my my rule is don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah, Darwin's mechanism does work, and there are little changes that can be selected. But that's not the question. The question is, you know, where do things like the flagellum and the I and the real machinery of life come from, and there is no reason to think that Darwin's mechanism can explain those. Now, 
so it's, it's a little more nuanced than I just stated the question, I guess. But but generally, uh, evolution works by genes breaking down. Now, so one of the things that you've pointed out in your book is that evolution is self-limiting by design. Now, could you kind of explain and expand on this a little for those who might say, well, well, wait a minute, that's totally different from what I've learned about evolution, that evolution is self-limiting. Now, of course, I know all of this stuff. I'm an expert. But for those who aren't, uh, one of the examples, I'm just, I'm only kidding, but one of the examples that's often brought up is is dogs and wolves, for example. There's a lot of talk like, well, didn't dogs come from wolves? So what is that exactly? Okay, well, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, uh, an example a lot of people are familiar with. You've got the wolves from the wild and uh the idea goes that you know thousands of years ago wolves were brought into villages and were used as pets and uh but over over time as especially in the past few hundred years people have decided that they would breed these dogs, descendants of wolves, you know, still pretty substantial animals for the traits that they wanted. For example, you know, uh, uh, they might want them to look cute <laughs> like a chihuahua, or they might want them to mm -hmm. be tough and big like a Great Dane, or fast like a, a, a greyhound and, and uh, other things. And they would uh, breed them. So they'd uh, have a bunch of dogs and let the dogs reproduce and go around and say, you, hey, you're cute. I like those floppy ears. You know, they don't stick up. Well, right. ears, they're kind of cute. And they look like a sad sack. And that's, that's appealing to me. So I will take this puppy and maybe another one of the opposite uh, sex that, you know, has a similar trait. And we'll take them over and we'll let them breed over here and then their offspring likely will have the similar trait and they'll they'll continue this for a while so this is artificial selection or selection by intelligent agents but nonetheless you're selecting for a trait that has a survival value in the sense that you're going to take care of these dogs um, and mm -hmm. and we've got all these astounding different varieties of dogs uh, and uh, evolutionists have for a long time pointed to the successes of dog breeding and said, look, this is an analogy for selection in nature. Sure, people are doing this, but, you know, we're select, you select for a trait and nature might select for a trait such as more muscles and uh, higher size or even smaller size if it has to s squeeze into various spaces. But again, it's only been in the past 20 years that science has been able to find out what exactly at the DNA level, at the molecular level, were those changes that caused those uh, characteristic traits of the dog breeds to occur. And it turns out that in very large part, it was the breaking of pre-existing genes that allowed that to occur. Just as an example, there are heavily muscled dogs uh, that uh, are bred, and you say to yourself, "Wow, whoa, look at that guy! He can, you know, that dog can, you know, could beat up any other dog." But it turns out that the 
that the mutation which causes the extra muscles is due to the breaking of a regulatory gene which tells the body of the dog when to stop making muscles. So there's a correct proportion or a good proportion for an animal to have. You don't want to be muscle bound. But if you, uh, as the breeder, say, I want a heavily muscled dog, I'll take this big guy. The odds are good that you're going to be selecting a dog that had a mutation which broke a gene which would stop muscles from growing excessively. And the odds are good that that's what would happen and because it's a lot more probable to break a gene than to make a new one. Genes are complex mm. entities, and it's real easy to break one. If you wanted a new gene, you'd have to go through a whole series of different steps, which is prohibitively unlikely. So the long and the short is that all of these cool dog breeds, cute and tough and, and noble and all sorts of stuff that evolutionists have been touting low these many years have turned out to be due to devolution, to degradation, to losing information, to breaking genes that were already there. Wow. So it, so it really is just kind of opposite of, of Darwin's theory. And that makes so much sense, especially, and it's just mind blowing that to learn this in the last 20 years, it, it almost seems like a lot of the time we look at, well, modern science, we have everything figured out. And, but it's like, the, it seems like we're just scratching the surface with biology, with what you're describing here. Oh, that, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and, uh, expect many more surprises, uh, to come and much more complications and sophistications, uh, to be discovered. But what you can be certain of is that the more we know, the more and more deeply we are, we're discovering uh, life to be designed. Uh, not, not, no discovery in the future will be able to explain the design we've discovered in the past, but in the future we can certainly discover <clears throat> even more sophisticated, even more elegant, and even more wonderful design. Um, and you know, so more more reasons to be appreciative of, of what we've been given. That is awesome. Now, my, just my last question before we go is, um, why is it that the, the Big Bang and cosmology and f physics, even biology in general to a large degree, all of these areas can be questioned and critiqued and improved, but it, it seems like when someone opposes evolution, even in the slightest, there's, there's this, <gasps> what do you think you're doing sort of reaction, almost as though it's, it's in its own untouchable category. Why does it seem that way? Well, because, uh, because it is, um, <laughs> uh, because I, I think it's a, it's a little too immediate, uh, when you're talking about a big bang versus say, uh, uh, an eternal universe or something, well, you get some pushback because a beginning of the universe has theistic implications, but that seems still pretty remote. That was a long time ago. I, I don't have to think about that when I'm having my breakfast. But if you're saying, you know, you know, those teeth with which you're chewing your cornflakes, you know, they have this marvelous structure which points strongly to design and the eyeballs with which you are looking at your breakfast and and uh, pretty much every part of you required 
deliberate, purposeful, intricate design, then then that seems more immediate, at least that's the way it seems to me. It seems more immediate. It's it's much more personal. And the implications then become uh, more insistent. So that's why I think evolution, especially of people, is in this category that uh, a lot of people don't want to be <laughs> don't want the, don't like those implications. They want to be on their own. You know, maybe I didn't make myself, but you know, nobody else did, and I can do what I you know what I want and and go where I will. But uh, when you find out you were int- you know uh, intricately and wondrously designed, then then you have to take that into consideration. If only they knew the implications of Darwin's theory in life. Now, just uh, where could we go to support your work and to learn more, uh, Dr. Behe? Well, uh, it turns out that uh, I have a website called uh, michaelbehe.com, all squished together in no space. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I don't know all this technology stuff, so other people set it up for me. But it's got links to my books, plus articles I've written, plus objections to my arguments by uh, scientists and my responses to those. So if you want to um, get into the nitty-gritty of this argument, see what the argument for design is, what objections to it are, what responses are to those objections, and back and forth, that's a great place to start, michaelbehe.com. yeah. Awesome. And, and we'll link that down in the description below, along with the link for Darwin Devolves. Awesome book. Make sure you get it. It's what we just talked about, but but far more of it. So, uh, Dr. Michael Behe, thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Um, go back and check out the rest of this series if you hadn't yet. And this Thursday, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, will be the last episode of the Doubts About Darwinism series before we start our new series on ethical and cultural issues. So send in your questions to information at apologetics.org and have a blessed week.